The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Austin, Texas. Do you believe this? It was deja vu for Elijah and Jared in Austin as they drove Elijah's van, newly painted light gray, into the heart of the campus of the University of Texas. These large crowds reminded them of the pro-life event that had ended with riots downtown. Elijah had his windows tinted and he had a wool hat pulled over his head and sunglasses on his face to help conceal his identity. On one side of the road were pro-life activists lining the road by the hundreds, holding their pro-life signs and shouting their slogans between rumbles of thunder in the east and occasional drizzle. Others were less confrontational, standing or sitting on lawn chairs, chatting with friends, or signing petitions under the cover of umbrellas for one conservative cause or another. On the other side of the road, the feminists, the environmentalists, and the homosexual and pro-choice groups were gathering. About a dozen students with an SSA banner chanted, STOP THE HATE! to the passers-by. There she is! Elijah exclaimed, and then momentarily retracted, No, that's not her. They were visiting the campus to try to discover Natalie's whereabouts. She had not answered her phone or returned the messages they had left for her. I'm telling you, said Jared, they got her. Elijah sighed nervously and then changed the subject. Looks like the life bill has pushed everybody out of the gray zone. Used to be that 10% of each side were activists and the 80% in the middle were wishy-washy. No more. The bill has turned everyone against Governor Adams or for him. He's made everyone choose sides. Yep, Jared agreed. Whoa! Elijah slammed on the brakes to keep from striking someone who darted in front of his van on foot. The sudden breaking of the van caused Jared to spill some of his Mountain Dew on his shirt. Hey! he shouted. A dozen leftists rushed across the road in front of the van and began to run down the sidewalk in the direction they were driving. What in the world? Everyone on both sides of the street suddenly started heading down the road, some running and some walking. When the sidewalks were filled, people walked in the middle of the road, making it difficult for vehicles to continue to make progress down the congested street. Jared looked to his right and saw two police officers trying to run past the crowds in a hurry. There are cops headed that way, he said worriedly. Be careful. Yeah, thanks. Elijah had to remember that he was a wanted man now. He was concerned about being identified through his license plate, though the new metallic gray paint job made that less likely. Elijah rolled down his window and motioned to a passerby. Hey, where's everybody going? Some anti-abortionists are trying to shut down the Austin Women's Clinic, the short-haired woman in a pink halter responded. Shut it down? I thought Governor Adams signed the abortion ban. A judge overruled the life ban this morning and the Austin Women's Clinic stayed open, but the fascists are trying to shut it down anyway. How? They're surrounding it and not letting anyone out or in. The girl ran ahead to try to catch up with her friends. Man, Elijah glanced at Jared and remarked, Did a federal judge rule it unconstitutional that quickly? You didn't actually expect the pro-aborts to give up, did you? With the judges, Congress, and the president with her military on the side of the abortionists, how can one governor scare the butchers away from their fortune? Jared opened the door and stepped out of the van. Find a place to park and join the fun. Don't do anything crazy. No one's going to bail you. Elijah stopped mid-sentence. Jared wasn't even listening as he began to trot down the road. Elijah sighed. Oh, brother. How in the world am I going to find him in this throng? Just ahead of him, police started redirecting traffic to an area off the road, and Elijah had no way of turning around in the midst of the growing mass of people. When he passed the police, he breathed a sigh of relief that they did not recognize him or his license plate. He found a place to parallel park on a side street. Elijah arrived at the scene just as the national news outlets were setting up their towers and their cameramen pressed into the crowd for the best view. Hundreds of pro-life protesters were seated in front of the main and side entrances around the Austin Women's Clinic, the only open abortion clinic in Texas. 
He watched as a large group of pro-choice college students tried to push into the thick blanket of human bodies around the clinic to make a path to the front entrance, but the pro-lifers pressed them out. The pro-choicers pushed back, and a pushing fight started that would have certainly ended in a melee if the police had not stepped between the pro-choice mob and the trespassing pro-lifers. Dozens of police lined up along the sidewalk wearing their riot helmets and gripping their billy clubs with their backs to the pro-life protesters who circled the clinic. The pro-choice college students who gathered around were infuriated that the police appeared to be protecting the trespassing anti-choicers instead of arresting them. The crowd of pro-choicers swelled to several hundred and gathered together tightly in the street directly in front of the women's center. Clearly, however, the pro-choicers were outnumbered as they were surrounded by hundreds more bystanders and passers-by who appeared to be more sympathetic with the trespassers. The arguing, chanting, and name-calling on the edge of their groups reached fighting words level on a number of occasions. The air was electric with conflict. It was chaos. More police were swarming in just as Elijah arrived. He pulled his wool hat a little lower on his head. A street vendor sold him a small Texas flag which some of the pro-life protesters were waving. He stood on the edge of the crowd and looked around for Jared. Elijah received a gentle tap on his shoulder. He turned around and a man stood before him, concealing his identity with a yellow don't-tread-on-me flag tied around his head, covering his mouth and nose. Elijah recognized the muddy orange UT cap. Brother David, Elijah wrapped his arms around David and gave him a hug. David whispered excitedly, so good to see you. Oh man, we tried to find you. I never expected it to be this easy. How are you and your family? We're safe. Where are you? David leaned in and whispered, My wife is heading south to a small hotel in Colton that said they'd take cash. Fewer and fewer are. Once we learned the life bill had been overruled and this abortion clinic was testing the waters by keeping its doors open, I had her drop me off. If God's going to move, it will be here, now. This, David said, pointing at the growing contention between anti-abortionist protesters and pro-choice students kept separated by a thin line of police officers. This is the razor's edge where tyranny in government meets righteousness in government. I suppose they'll try to arrest everybody once the feds arrive. We need to pray, said David. I know the sheriff, Matt Wellington. He's not in a hurry to open this child-killing center back up for business, that's for sure. He'll drag his feet as long as he can. The anti-abortion trespassers continued to grow in their numbers until they almost completely surrounded the building, thirty to forty people thick. One man stood in the middle of the lawn, surrounded by seated protesters, and waved a large Christian flag. Thirty FBI agents arrived, dressed in black with the acronym of their bureau on their hats and on the backs of their shirts in white letters. They huddled at the four corners of the abortion clinic property beside the police. They appeared indecisive. They spoke to each other on their shoulder-mounted microphones and rested their hands on their holstered weapons. Their belts appeared weighted down with nunchucks, handcuffs, billy clubs, and tear gas canisters. As the FBI agents trickled in, the pro-life protesters recalled what was at stake. Conviction for a FACE Act violation could leave them in a federal prison for six months to years. But with President Brighton's executive orders, there was no telling the scope of the misery they were about to endure. They reminded themselves that children were being butchered inside and that they had the support of a governor and a state legislature who might still come to their aid. Regardless, they were prepared to lay down their freedom and even their lives for the least of these, the preborn. Four large yellow school buses arrived with FBI personnel walking before them to clear the way. Now the arrests begin, Elijah predicted when he saw the school buses. He looked further down the road and saw something that nauseated him. And it's getting uglier by the second. Let's keep our distance. A dozen armored personnel carriers came rumbling down the road toward the clinic, filled with about 200 armed troops. Protesters and observers moved out of the way for the large bulky vehicles. Momentarily, the vehicles parked along the side of the road and the troopers filed out, some in riot gear, others dressed more casually in camouflage. They stood in parallel single-file lines about a block away from the clinic toward the east. Elijah and David walked past them on the other side of the road, each predicting to the other how they thought the strife would culminate. Matt Wellington, the sheriff of Austin, tried diligently to get the FBI to stand down and let the local police handle the situation. 
He was a six foot four expert pistol marksman and a champion boxer, 60 pounds overweight thanks to a shoulder injury that brought his promising boxing career to an early retirement. Your presence is uncalled for. It's only making matters worse. He raised his voice, his face only six inches from the senior bureau agent's face, so as to be heard above the growing noise on all sides. We will decide that, Sheriff, the senior agent hollered back, slightly perturbed by how the huge stubby sheriff had drawn so close to him. As long as it remains peaceful, we will give those barricading the clinic an option of whether they want to get arrested or leave without incident, said the sheriff. If they're trespassing, it's not peaceful. We are charging every one of these trespassers with a face violation and one hate crime for every person inside this health clinic who's willing to file a complaint. Those are the president's explicit orders. Let us handle it, said Wellington. Please, sir, we live, eat, and go to church alongside these people every day. They will respect us, but they will not respect your intrusion, and neither will my officers. If any of your officers intervene, then we'll arrest them, too. A subordinate tapped the shoulder of the senior FBI agent conversing with Sheriff Wellington. What? Here he is. The subordinate handed the senior agent a phone, and he put it to his ear. We're ready. The soldiers in camouflage riot gear were given the order to join with the police on the sidewalks on the two sides of the clinic facing the main streets that intersected in front of the clinic. Soon the sidewalks were lined three soldiers thick, each holding what appeared to be electronic riot sticks in one hand with the other resting on holstered handguns. As if on cue, the soldiers started trying to surround the group of protesters directly in front of the clinic. The trespassers did their best to hold their ground. The soldiers and FBI agents in riot gear were merciless as they trampled on those who lay prostrate in front of them to obstruct their way. They stepped on hands, arms, legs, backs, and feet. The protesters squirmed and screamed, and the injured curled themselves into balls to protect themselves, but they made no aggressive moves toward the officers and soldiers. The soldiers pushed strongly toward the front entrance on both sides of the front lawn. About a hundred soldiers in the streets had the duty of dispersing bystanders in the street. These men had rifles slung over their shoulders, they held their batons horizontally and began to push against the crowd of observers, ordering them to leave. Many resisted, insisting that they were in compliance with the law. As the soldiers continued to try to push toward the building, the protesters on both sides of the lawn pressed in towards the front of the building, making it very difficult for the soldiers to make any headway. They soon gave up that plan and began to arrest trespassers at the outer edge of the crowd. It was expected that most, if not all, the protesters would just get up and leave to try to avoid federal charges and prison time, at least the elderly and the children, so they thought, but not one protester stood to leave when the soldiers began to arrest them. That's when the torments began. Soldiers are not trained to respect civil rights, but to obey orders and destroy the enemy. The camouflage troopers seemed to enjoy demeaning and terrorizing the unarmed civilians with painful submission holds. A 17-year-old woman was chosen first. She was pulled from the clutches of her friends and her arm was twisted behind her back. She was thrust to the sidewalk, screaming in pain. Yet they did not release their submission hold. They continued to apply pressure on the teenager's twisted wrist so as to drive fear into the crowd of protesters. It worked. Those nearby began to cry and tremble for their friend as she screamed and begged for mercy, but received none. After the young girl was finally hauled off, diaphoretic in pain with her arm still twisted behind her back, the officers had expected to see timidity among those nearby. Instead, they saw courage, determination, and in some, anger. These protesters had counted the cost and were willing to pay it. They were willing to suffer and even to die, but not leave. One by one, the protesters were placed into painful submission holds. Ears were grabbed and twisted. Wrists, elbows, and knees were beaten with clubs. Painful neck holds were applied with nunchucks. One man tried to push an officer away from his wife and found his shoulders, elbows, knees, hips, and ankles simultaneously beaten by four helmeted soldiers with clubs, while another applied an electric shock intermittently to the man's upper back and buttocks. The man's wife sat in horror watching her husband being tortured by American soldiers. She began to cry and plead for them to stop. In response, they grabbed her and twisted her arms until she crumpled to the ground. She watched in horror as her husband screamed and convulsed against the cement.
As Sheriff Wellington watched FBI agents and U.S. Army soldiers torture the trespassers, he grew livid. He shouted at the senior bureau agent and pointed at civilians who were crying out in pain. This is unnecessary! Call off the soldiers! The senior agent ignored the admonition and turned his back on him to give further orders to subordinates by radio. We're not going to stand by and watch you torture peaceful Texas civilians! The senior agent snapped his head around and shouted at Wellington, We're following the president's direct orders. Now leave if you can't stomach it. Sheriff Matt Wellington was astonished at their brazen disregard for his judgment. He was tempted to remove his officers from the situation altogether. He did not condone what the trespassers were doing, but he was sympathetic with the plight of the preborn children who were scheduled to die that day. He tapped the senior bureau agent on the shoulder, and the bureau agent's head snapped back to face the sheriff. Don't you dare touch me. I'm taking names, and my men are taking video and photographic evidence of what you are doing. You do that. Wellington mumbled to a deputy beside him. Get our cameras running. We can't let this happen. And see if you can get the governor on the phone. Sheriff Wellington, followed by three officers, bypassed the senior FBI agent on the scene and directly approached the soldiers that were arresting civilians. This is against the law, he reproved them. The senior soldier on the scene, a 40-year-old captain named Steve Dans, turned to face the sheriff. Back away, sir. You'll be next. Two buses were gradually filled with about a third of the protesters that had gathered on the property of the Austin Women's Clinic. Most of the bystanders in the streets had been driven like cattle past a perimeter the soldiers had set up about 50 yards east of the clinic. From this distance, Elijah and David watched a scene unfold that they could never have imagined. A train of large, camouflaged vehicles approached a roadblock that the U.S. Army had established on the western perimeter about 100 yards from the Austin Women's Clinic. This did not attract much attention at first, as everyone thought it was the U.S. military. Then there was a flurry of automatic machine gun fire on the far side of the roadblock. Everybody's attention turned to the west. A blur of soldiers could be seen running toward the clinic, and then they stopped and placed their hands in the air. In a few seconds, a caravan of brownish-green armored personnel carriers and Humvees mounted with 50 caliber machine guns sped toward the abortion clinic. Confusion filled the stifling summer air, and some speculated that there was a mutiny among the soldiers. Captain Dans, the U.S. Army captain responsible for arresting the anti-abortion protesters, shouted into his shoulder-mounted two-way radio, Hammer! Respond! Hammer! 363! Over! He cursed, and then a response came through his earplug. After a few seconds, he shouted to his men, Firewall! Now! We are under attack! Firewall! Firewall! The soldiers forming the perimeter around the clinic began to look at each other, doubting the order. Elijah heard the one nearest him say to another, Firewall? Who's attacking us? The federal soldiers began to spread out and take cover behind buses and bushes, and some dropped to one knee or fell prone on the ground and aimed their weapons at the oncoming train of camouflaged vehicles. Who? one of the soldiers asked aloud. Texas Guard, responded Captain Steve Dans. It's the Texas Guard. Hold your positions. Do not fire unless fired upon. When the protesters around the clinic realized that the Texas Guard had arrived, they were greatly encouraged. They began to clap and cheer loudly. Those around David and Elijah behind the barricade in the east also joined in the cheer for the Texas Guard. The yellow buses full of handcuffed pro-life protesters began to resound with praise. The pro-life observers who gathered behind the barricade began to walk inside the unmanned barricade toward the clinic in defiance of the invaders. They came as close as they dared and then formed a line twenty yards behind the federal troops who knelt and aimed their weapons westward. The trepidation of the federal troopers was self-evident with their edgy demeanor and their shifting glances. The train of Texas Guard Humvees and armored troop vehicles came to a halt thirty yards west of the clinic. For a tense span of a few minutes, neither the FBI nor the United States Army nor the Texas Guard moved. Elijah and David started singing His Truth is Marching On, and hundreds joined in. The buses shook with the singing. Thousands of Texans in view of the clinic joined in chorus. They watched from the edge of every alley and blocked-off road, from the windows of almost every building within half a mile, from inside the cars at a standstill at the U.S. Army roadblocks. Millions of Texans watched in anticipation by television or listened by radio. This was a showdown of historic proportions.
The soldiers were not mentally prepared to stare down the barrels of Humvee-mounted 50 caliber machine guns and weaponry mounted on armored personnel carriers. They did not relish the prospect that they might die in a gun battle trying to keep an abortion clinic open for business. Thanks to the encouragement of thousands of onlookers, the Texas Guard warriors grew more and more enthusiastic about their abrupt disruption of the federal government's plans. They shouted taunts and threats at the soldiers who stood and squatted across from them with their weapons aimed and their fingers on the triggers. Then came the booming command over a loudspeaker attached to the personnel carriers. By the order of the governor and the legislature of the state of Texas, you must immediately cease and desist. Another cheer erupted from the crowd of pro-life Texans. Those in the bus began to stomp their feet, and one bus full of handcuffed protesters began to rock their bus side to side as they cheered and shouted. The order was repeated, yet nobody moved except the cheering Texans, who continued to sing and shout. Those nearest the Texas Guard forces began to encourage them. Elijah and David pressed in as close as they could to the area on the sidewalk where the FBI and U.S. Army leaders busied themselves conferring with one another, taking turns on the radio and trying to plan their response to this unexpected dilemma. Elijah overheard the U.S. Army captain in charge of arresting the protesters speak into his shoulder-mounted microphone. Awaiting orders, sir. The FBI agent who appeared to be in charge was distraught that the U.S. Army troops had stopped arresting the trespassers. He walked over to Captain Danz and shouted at him disrespectfully, Just do what you came to do! Elijah leaned in close to try to listen to their conversation. Are you blind? Captain Dan spat. They're not going to do anything, the senior bureau agent shouted, motioning at the Texas Guard forces. They're going to put you all on trial, Sheriff Wellington inserted his intimidating commentary from the edge of the argument. If you survive, those boys might just shoot you dead if you don't retreat. They're killing babies in that clinic and you're helping them. The senior FBI agent winced at Wellington's unwelcome chatter. Shut your trap! He turned and screamed at the U.S. Army leaders at the top of his voice. You just arrest him like General Tiller told you to. Captain Danz appeared indecisive. He ignored the FBI and the sheriff's instructions and turned away and spoke again into his shoulder mic. I'm waiting for their orders, sir. You've been given your orders, the senior FBI agent insisted. Now do it. Call in your Apaches if you have to. Push them back. They have Apaches too, Sheriff Wellington interjected. They also have mortar rounds on some of these personnel carriers aimed right at us. I don't see how any of this annuls the order given by General Tiller, the senior bureau agent said as he pointed at the 400 remaining trespassers seated tightly together around the abortion clinic. They are in violation of federal law. And you're in violation of Texas law, Wellington shouted. Now where are you standing? I thought it was the United States of America, Captain Danz shouted back. It's Texas first. U.S. Army Captain Danz smiled at the courage of the Austin sheriff. The smile was out of place and it made the senior FBI agent feel uneasy. As a United States soldier, Danz told Sheriff Wellington in a more cordial tone, I've got a mind to shoot you for treason, but as a Texan, well, let's just say I'm torn. The sheriff grinned faintly. I'll try to take that as a compliment. What? The FBI agent in charge shouted at Captain Danz. If you're so enthusiastic about arresting these trespassers, do it yourself. The U.S. Army captain dared the federal agent without looking at him. As far as I'm concerned, hundreds of heavy caliber automatic machine guns aimed at you by state guardsmen who take you for a baby butcher changes things a bit. I'll wait for further orders from those willing to take responsibility for the deaths of American soldiers. The news cameras that had been driven back were now coming in close for historic footage. 300 Army soldiers and about 50 FBI agents stared down the barrels of large-caliber machine guns in Texas Guard Humvees and armored personnel carriers, as 100 local police under the direction of Sheriff Matt Wellington formed a protective cushion between the trespassing pro-lifers and the Army soldiers and bureau agents. If there was going to be a shootout, Wellington wanted to make sure he could protect these civilians. For a long minute, no soldier or vehicles moved or spoke. Cocked and loaded pistols and rifles spoke volumes, as did the cheering crowds. Elijah and David knew that everything was changing. 
Get those soldiers out of Austin right now, Henry Adams had never been so adamant about anything in his whole life. The U.S. Army General was unmoved as they studied each other over the encrypted internet connection. Now! The governor pounded his desk as he shouted into the camera. Robert Boniface, Texas Guard General McIntosh, and Attorney General Stratton stood around the desk watching the determined grimace of the general of the federal troops stationed at Camp Bullis Military Reservation in San Antonio on the governor's computer monitor. General Tiller was more subdued in his response. You are outside your jurisdiction, governor. I am the chief executive of the state of Texas, sir. The federal government is a servant of the states, not its master. It is you who are outside of your jurisdiction. The last time I checked, Governor, said the general, staring into the camera affixed to the top of his monitor, Roe v. Wade and the Freedom to Access Clinic Entrances Act is settled law. It's settled lawlessness, and we're unsettling it today. We are not going to let you murder innocent Texans. I am obeying direct orders from the commander-in-chief in arresting those protesters, said General Tiller. Then she's out of her jurisdiction as well. She has no right to give you unconstitutional and immoral orders, and you are under no obligation to obey them. You call them off or else. Or else what? Or else we will duke it out and let deity defend the best man in the right cause. I'll put you on trial for crimes against humanity. Now it was General Tiller's neck veins that were bulging. You're as insane as they say you are. You're going to order the Texas Guard to fire on the troops of the United States Army? I will order my boys to defend innocent life from your brutality, General Tiller, and I'll execute the surviving soldiers if a jury convicts them. You can bet your CFR membership card on it. Call them off, now! General McIntosh, said General Tiller, seeing him behind the governor in the corner of the screen, by the authority of the United States Military Code, I'm calling you into active duty to the United States Armed Forces as of this minute, and I hereby order you to call off your guard forces. The governor turned and saw McIntosh behind him. His eyes were closed, and he bit his lip. McIntosh stepped closer to the camera behind Governor Adams and swallowed hard. I'm with the governor on this one, sir. Abortion is murder, and I am under no obligation to consent to an order that results in the intentional killing of innocent children. My order remains, your personal opinions notwithstanding, growled General Tiller, his face reddening with rage. Call off the guard or there will be severe repercussions. My loyalties remain with the governor, General, and with the Constitution, which says that the government shall not deprive... How would you like a court-martial, Mr. McIntosh? At this point, General McIntosh backed out of view of the Army General and sat down in a chair in the corner of the governor's office. Governor Adams saw an emotional heaviness descend upon General McIntosh as he laid his career on the altar of sacrifice, but the governor was confident that he'd do the right thing. General Tiller said Adams, please inform your commander-in-chief that Texas will not submit to her tyranny any more. We consider your armed invasion of Texas to keep that abortuary open to be a violation of Texas law and the Constitution and an act of war against our people. You will pull your men back. I will hold you personally responsible. The life bill that I signed yesterday was ruled unconstitutional this morning, General Tiller interrupted. We are all subordinates to a higher authority. We must follow the law. We must follow the orders of those who rule over us. God rules over us, General Tiller. Would you have killed unarmed Jews if Hitler had demanded it? Would you have joined the Redcoats in burning down the homes of the colonial militia? I'm beginning to think you would have, General Tiller. Enough of this nonsense, said General Tiller. Pull those guard forces away from that clinic now, or I will put out a federal warrant for your arrest. Fine, the governor replied without hesitation, but I'm placing a warrant out for yours as well. I'll charge you with attempted murder and put you before a Texas jury before my term's up. Do you want to go to war? Is that how far you're willing to take this? Tiller's colorful badges clanged as he trembled with fury. If you want to kill innocent Texans, you've already got a war and you're on the losing side, answered the governor. We'll see about that. I'll be on the phone with the president. You do that, General. You tell her that we will not let her murder any more innocent Texans. When General Tiller disconnected, Henry Adams put his head in his hands and began to pour out his heart to the Lord. 
Robert Boniface and General McIntosh were moved in their spirits as they witnessed his passion. They walked over to him, and each of them put a hand on his shoulder. Together they bowed their heads and prayed for God's will to be done. When General Tiller disconnected the feed, the assistant who sat next to him immediately began to dial the number for the president's direct line. After a deep, audible sigh, Tiller told his assistant, Hang up. Hang up, it's ringing. I said hang up. The assistant tapped end on the phone. Several Texas State Guard troopers began to enter the buses with bolt cutters to free the protesters who had been arrested. The soldier who sat in the driver's seat of the bus offered a protest, but did not try to prevent them. One by one, the Texans were freed, cheering and clapping. They walked back over onto the property of the Austin Women's Clinic and assumed their positions. No one tried to stop them. What in the world are you doing? The abortionist screamed at the soldiers on the sidewalk in a heavy accent through a partially ajar clinic window. His cry earned him a hundred simultaneous reproofs and jeers from the anti-abortion activists who blockaded his clinic. The abortionist quickly shut the window and closed the curtain. Soon all was quiet again. The crowds had stopped cheering, and an eerie stillness coupled with the hot and humid Texas air made some swoon with suspense. The senior FBI agent in charge of the operation was enraged about the development. He got on the phone with his superior and mostly listened, the superior's rage only occasionally punctuated by the agent's lavish apologies. Finally, Captain Dans received the word over his radio. He took a deep breath. That's it, boys. Texas wins. Safety's on. Back into your vehicles. It's been called off. The applause and cheers that erupted were like the deafening rumble of a Texas tornado, like the rushing waters of a breaking dam, like the cheers for a Dallas Cowboys winning touchdown pass in the final seconds of a Super Bowl. Thousands of pro-life Texans shouted, clapped, danced, jumped up and down, and cheered. As the U.S. Army forces filed down the street and toward their vehicles, the Bureau agents in their riot gear had no choice but to follow closely behind. Police officers and investigators, under direct orders from Governor Adams and Sheriff Matt Wellington, approached the building and made their way inside. They had orders to cordon off the building and treat it as a crime scene. David started the song. First he sang it by himself, then as tears fell down his face he began to lift his voice louder and was joined by dozens all around him. Congressman Jim Knight sat in his living room with his wife and children watching the event unfold on television. Huddled together on the couch, their whole family joined in the tune. James Knight's heart was so filled with ecstasy he thought he would burst. He immediately got on the phone with the Wyoming governor and urged him to follow in Henry Adams' footsteps. Montana Governor Benjamin Boswell was on a conference call with the governors, key cabinet members, and congressional leaders of the states of Wyoming, Washington State, Idaho, North and South Dakota, and Utah at that very moment, discussing plans to recriminalize abortion and physician-assisted suicide and prevent the confiscation of any weapons in their states. They paused in their intense conversation to watch the event unfold on television. When the feds fled from the clinic with their tails tucked between their legs, there was much rejoicing. It could be done. The timing was a great encouragement to them all. Boswell began to sing the song as soon as he heard the tune over the television. The other governors, cabinet members, and state congressmen joined in. I think that's him. There he is. There's your daddy. Darlene moved close to the television and pointed him out to their daughters, and they squealed with glee. David still had the orange UT cap on his head and the yellow bandana over his face when the feds retreated, but as the television camera zoomed into the crowd of pro-lifers that continued to increase in size around the Austin Women's Clinic, she was able to pick him out. She stood up beside the TV and clasped her hands in front of her, tears of joy streaming down her face. I'm so proud of him. David had his arm over Elijah's shoulder. Darlene and the three girls joined in the song that their father sang. After a few stanzas, it seemed like the whole state of Texas, indeed every rural community in the country, was singing. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. With wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. 
Just as they thought the conflict was all but over, a gun blast resounded from inside the clinic, piercing their celebration with a stark reminder that their struggle for liberty and justice had only just begun. David and Elijah followed some officers who made their way through the crowd toward the abortion clinic. The police officers went into the abortion clinic, and Elijah and David stood at the front entrance and joined others in prayer for a peaceful resolution to whatever conflict was raging inside. A moment later, a deputy burst out the front door of the clinic. We need a preacher! Quick! We need a preacher in here! David hastened to the officer. I'm a preacher. Come with me! As they made their way through the foyer and down the hall, the deputy briefed him on the situation. This woman was halfway through an abortion procedure when we attempted to arrest the abortionist. He pulled a gun out of his pocket and shot Sheriff Wellington in the shoulder. Is he okay? He'll make it, but the patient got a glimpse of the dead baby and she wrestled the gun out of the abortionist's hands. She is now threatening to shoot him. She's threatening to shoot the abortionist? The officer nodded. David followed the officer to the door of the patient room and he saw Sheriff Matt Wellington sitting with his back against the hallway wall, pressing a towel against his shoulder wound. He was diaphoretic with pain and pale from his loss of blood, but was more concerned about the situation in the room than he was about his own condition. He motioned for David to go inside. God help you. David put his ear to the door and heard the doctor pleading for his life. Please don't kill me, please! You're a liar and a murderer, the woman screamed. You told me it wasn't a baby! David opened the door slowly, poked his head into the room, and assessed the situation. The physician was in the corner of the room with blood all over his chin and shirt from a broken nose. His hands were raised and a grimace of fear was on his face. The young woman was naked save for a hospital gown that covered the front of her body to her knees. The gun shook in her trembling hands. David saw that she was standing in a pool of her own blood. The young woman looked like death warmed over. She turned to look at him briefly. Are you a preacher? Yes, my name is David Jameson. He stepped into the room and shut the door behind him. Will God forgive me if I kill him? No, the doctor pleaded, falling to his knees. Please, Jessica, don't. Will God forgive me if I kill him? David felt an invisible yet searing blast of heat from an unseen power in the room. His skin started to prickle. He bowed his head and asked the Lord for guidance. At that moment, something rose up within David's chest. His frail humanity was becoming an instrument of the Almighty. I think you're asking the wrong question, Jessica. Will God forgive you if you don't? What? That was an answer she did not expect. You think God wants me to kill him? I think God wants you to be concerned about forgiveness for what you have already done, not for what you're about to do. You're pointing that gun as if you're innocent. I didn't know. He told me it was just a blob. Oh, you knew it was a baby, Jessica. David calmly sat down on the stool and rolled it up against the counter, splitting the distance between the abortionist and the patient. How can God forgive you if you won't confess your sin? Jesus died on the cross to give both of you forgiveness, yet you stand there pointing a weapon of death at a man whose crime is pointing a weapon of death at others. Hypocrisy is not the path of forgiveness. Repentance is. Jessica wavered but a moment and then tightened her grip on the pistol. Her hands no longer shook. Her mind cleared. She could easily destroy this animal to avenge all the lives he had snuffed out. She would be the representative of all women who shamefully hid their abortions from the world. She suddenly rushed to the doctor and pressed the gun to his forehead. You should die! No, please, don't kill me! The abortionist crumpled to the ground and begged for mercy. David stood up from his stool as the door swung open and two police officers entered with their weapons aimed at the girl. Put it down, ma'am. We will arrest him and put him on trial. Put down the gun. Jessica looked at the preacher who stood calmly beside her. He smiled and extended his hand toward her. Come back to Jesus, Jessica. Ask him for mercy, not justice. Mercy. At hearing those words, the 18-year-old girl began to weep. She extended the weapon toward David and dropped it into his open palm. She reached for him with her other hand and cried out, Oh, what have I done? Oh, Jesus. When he grabbed her hand, she collapsed. 
mercy, Jessica. Receive mercy in Jesus' name. Colton, Texas. Darlene was among the victors that day. She hugged her children and they all thanked God for Daddy. They raised their hands to heaven and laughed. They danced and sang. But they were not alone. A motel worker had recognized Darlene and reported their location to the federal authorities. As Darlene sang and watched the oldest jump back and forth from bed to bed in their musty hotel room, six federal agents listened from a nearby room through well-camouflaged devices planted throughout. Darlene was their only solid link to David Jameson, and with the pressure mounting on the president to give Congress access to the investigative report of the Ohio bombing, and with the Texas Guard drawing weapons on federal troops, the stakes just got higher. Much higher. Why don't we pick her up and interrogate her, sir, the senior agent pleaded with Todd Hamilton on the phone. She's a treasure chest of intel. The president wants action. No, Todd Hamilton waved an index finger in front of the camera on top of his monitor. Give it time. He'll make contact. The agent was impatient. Texas is at war with the federal government, sir, and this David Jameson, who is the only viable suspect in the Columbus bombing, is offering aid and comfort to the enemy on nationwide television. Why wait? His wife is soft. We'll have her children. She'll break quickly. Her husband's an enemy combatant, and she's probably an accessory. All maneuvers are on the table to capture her husband. She's not going anywhere. How long should we wait, then? The agent was exasperated at Hamilton's reluctance to interrogate Darlene Jameson. Soon. If her husband hasn't made contact soon, we'll take her in. Will you at least do me a favor, sir? Will you speak to the president about it? Hamilton knew where this was headed, and he didn't like it one bit. After the humiliating retreat in Austin, the president would want to take out her frustrations on this poor woman. He couldn't stomach the thought of the best bureau interrogators torturing this mother of three to give up answers to questions that she might not have. All right, I'll speak with the president. Helena, Montana. Our people now know that it is time to get more aggressive. The courage of Texas has rebuked our cowardice. Ben Boswell was online with the cabinets of six other states around Montana. He was making the case that they cooperate in their resistance to the federal government. The governor of South Dakota nodded. Unified, we could be so much stronger to keep our guns. And to protect our right of free speech, Utah's attorney general added. And our right to trial by jury, the Wyoming governor said with a nod. I just got a call from James Knight, and he's all for it. First things first, Boswell's eyes darted from governor to governor, whose faces were displayed on his computer screen. I was present online during Governor Adams' cabinet meeting just before the conflict today, and he said something that struck a chord in my heart. How can God bless us with victory over tyranny if we are letting innocent people be killed in our own states? He paused to let them consider the answer to that question. All of us must pass our abortion and physician-assisted suicide bans first, then we'll deal with protecting our God-given rights in other areas. But the judiciary won't respect it, the governor of Nebraska said as he shook his head. No way. Then we'll disrespect the judiciary, said Boswell forcefully. God comes first, does he not? Our obligation to protect the innocent within our own borders takes precedence over any obligation we have to the federal government. How far will you take your resistance? Boswell leaned onto his elbows on his desk and studied the eyes of the state leaders before him. As far as we must. How far? If secession and war are the only available means to us to do justice and protect the innocent, then that is what we must do. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com.
O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.